Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast, a conversation designed to help leaders go further, faster. I'm Andy Stanley. And before we jump into today's content, I wanted to talk about a special offer from our friends at Belay. From startups to large corporations, we all want to grow. But as a leader, you need extra time to do what only you can do. It's one of the things that all of us struggle with. And this is where our friends at Belay can help. Belay will help you free up your time and allow you to focus on the things that matter most to your success and make the biggest difference in your organization. Because whether you need a highly vetted US-based virtual assistant, bookkeeper, social media manager, or website specialist, Belay has the right person ready to help right now. And to help you get started, Belay is offering their latest book, Delegate to Elevate for free. Delegate to Elevate. You can get this book for free. It's an ebook and it'll help you learn how to stop diluting your efforts and trusting your team with more responsibility. This will empower you to courageously focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses, which is one of the things that every great leader does. To claim this offer, you just need to text the word Andy, A-N-D-Y, to 55123. That's Andy to 55123 and get your free copy today. You'll get it in no time and you'll be back to doing what only you can do, which is growing your organization. And now let's jump into today's content. And I have been looking forward to this month's episode for quite some time. And I realized I say that about every podcast episode, but it's true every single time. But today, Clay Scroggins is in the studio with me to talk about his book, The Aspiring Leader's Guide to the Future, subtitled Nine Surprising Ways Leadership is Changing. Clay, welcome back. Andy, thank you. Longtime listener. Uh, maybe third time caller, uh, but I, I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you. Yes. Well, for those of you who have been a part of our podcast audience for some time, or I should say podcast family, we consider mm. this family, a giant family. Clay's actually no stranger because he's worked in our organization or worked in an organization for almost 20 years, then recently struck out on his own. Now he's speaking to organizations, both large and small, about leadership development. Um, he's been doing that really for the past few years. And his first book, um, How to Lead when you're not in charge. I guess that was our first, maybe our first podcast together, Mm -hmm. talking about how to lead when you're not in charge. has led so many opportunities for Clay to inspire leaders who may not be in the CEO seat, but aspire to lead even still. Now, his newest book um, is an important addition to his leadership messaging, and it's really pretty much for everybody, whether you're in charge or not. So before we talk about uh, the book specifically, I always, we love to ask authors this question. I think it's because I like it when people ask me this question, actually, <laughs> is what, you know, what led you to writing a book? I mean, as you know, Clay, and for, I guess, probably a lot of people in our audience, writing a book, it's, I don't know, I guess there's some people who just love it, love it, love it, but it's it's just a lot of work. You got to really want to say something to go to all the mm-hmm. effort of writing a book. So what motivated you to take on this project? It was in the middle of the of COVID, or at least, some, I don't know, it's hard to say, were we in the middle of it? Are we on the tail end of it? Who knows where we were in it? But right. it was, you know, 2021, somewhere in there, and everything was changing. I mean, the whole world was changing. Uh, our, our friend Frank Blake came and told our leadership team at Buckhead Church at the time, he said, we compressed you know, a decade of change in yep. just a few months, that the world was already changing, yep. but change just sped up. And in light of all of those changes, I was thinking about leadership. How is leadership changing? So I started to set out to research that topic. And everything I read, every every blog, article, book, 
you know, they all said, they all said just that. They said, well, it's changing. leadership's changing. Yeah. That's helpful. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Nobody's arguing with that. Exactly. What do I do with that? Exactly. The question is, well, how, how is it changing? Yep. Uh, I love that, that Wayne Gretzky line. I don't know why we quote the hockey player so much about this one particular statement that he said, but he said, I don't skate to where the puck has been. Mm-hmm. I skate to where the puck is going. So right. obviously, as we think through developing as leaders— we need to hang something on the wall. How is leadership changing yep. so that we can develop into that kind of leader, the kind of leader that the future is going to demand? Yeah, because it's always tempting to look back, but then it's too late <clears throat> to the point, you know. So the, the subtitle of the book, Nine Surprising Ways Leadership is Changing. So there's some obvious ways. And one of the, the advantages of this book is you really do uh, sort of excavate some of the non-obvious ways in which leadership is changing. The obvious ones we're all on top of, or we we bump into them so quickly we adapt. But it's those undercurrents, yeah, you know, that well take said. us by surprise. Like, I know something's wrong. I know this isn't working, but I, I don't know why. And right. the people around me know it's not working, and I'm not sure what I should be doing at work. So anyway, this book, it really is helpful specifically because it's, it draws our attention to some things that, again, it's the kind of thing you read it and you go, oh, yeah, that explains what I'm experiencing. So, um, so anyway, let's, let's start with an example. How is it changing? Well, there, to your point, there are the obvious ways. I mean, we in the last couple of years, we've all gotten so much more accustomed to the work from home, get your job done when you want to get it done. I was just, I had lunch with a friend from college just a couple of weeks ago who was, he's in sales. He's been in sales for 20 years. He's been very successful at selling people. And I was asking him, well, what, what have you experienced about the change? And he said, well, I, I've always been a bottle of wine and a steak kind of guy. Yep. And I'm like, tell me more about that. <laughs> and, and what he means is he would, that was the way he yeah. sold. You wine and dine. Exactly. Yep. There, there you go. The actual wine and yeah. dine phrase. And he said, it's just so different now. Now it's hard to, it's much harder to get people face to face. It's much harder to connect relationally with mm-hmm. someone. So I'm having to learn almost a new way of selling. I, I, I like to think of it that We've all been trained, particularly those of us that are, you know, over the age of 30, probably. We've been trained to lead in a certain way. We've been calibrated to a world that no longer exists. And the sooner we can find those ways that it's changed, the better. The, the example I, I love to share, I actually grabbed from uh, Angela Arents, mm-hmm. who I, I guess is, she's either been a guest of this podcast or she's done stuff. Um, no, but Angela, if you're out there, we would love to have you on the podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she listens or not. I, but I, I I've, met, I've actually had an opportunity to have lunch with Angela and her husband one time. Anyway, go ahead. She's fabulous. Uh, Angela was the CEO of Burberry, and then uh, she was the senior vice president of retail at Apple. Uh, they they sell some products over there at Apple. Yeah, pause and imagine that. You are the senior vice president of retail, and at the time, all retail stores and That's right. online. That's right. Yeah, what a job. So what, So quick aside, so when I had lunch with her and her husband, Sandra, and I did, um, at the end of this lunch, she said, Andy, is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> is there anything you can do for yeah. me? Yeah, and here's what I said literally. I said, Angela, I'm so glad you asked. My foster daughter, Maisie, needs an iPhone case. <laughs> and then I just paused. And she looked at me. She didn't know me. It's like— you're serious. You're talking to the vice president of sales for all of Apple, and you're asking. And I said, "I'm just kidding. No, you can't do anything for me." <laughs> Sandra's like elbowing me, and <laughs> I'm it, like, "Stop it." Okay, so anyway, go ahead, Andy. Most people don't know your snarky sense of humor, like it's Angela. Not snarky. Didn't. Yeah. I think it's, it's excellent. Anyway, so she, 
she's telling me the story that her first couple months while she's at Apple, her, her first part of her first big charge was, hey, we need you to bring some unity to all of these, you know, 100,000 retail employees, which uh, obviously that's not easy to do. She said the, the quickest thing I did was I started sending out this video every Monday morning called it, she called it three points in three minutes. So just she'd shoot it real quick. Here's three things that are on the top of my mind, three things that are important to me. She'd send it out. She said, I thought it would be a great way for people to get to know me, for them to hear a little bit about what's important to me. She said one of the first episodes we were shooting, she said her daughter calls her. And her daughter at the time was in college. Uh, I think her daughter was still in London where they had been. And so when your college-age daughter calls you at any point in time, I assume you answer the phone, but when your college-age daughter calls you from across the pond, yep. you definitely answer the phone. So she says, hang one second, keep it rolling. She answers the phone. She says, hey, I'm shooting this video. Let me call you right back. As soon as I get done, I'll call you back. She puts the phone back down. She finishes her video, three points, three minutes. She said, as they were packing up all the equipment, she said she had the thought. She said, you know what? Don't edit that. Let's just send it out just like that. Oh, wow. Which I'm sure, you know, those employees were like, um, Angela, we're Apple. We created the software that will edit the hard software yeah. and the hardware. We can fix this. Exactly. <laughs> if anybody can, we can fix it. And she said, no, 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 no. I'm just going to send it out just like that. She said the next morning, she said in her inbox after the email had been sent to all of their, you know, 100,000 retail employees, she said she had hundreds of responses. And what people responded to was the phone call. They responded to her being interrupted by her daughter and her willingness to take the phone call. And she said the message that she got back from them was, thank you for being a person. You're a real person. You're bringing your best. You're trying to do your greatest work, but you're also trying to be a great mom. You're trying to be a great spouse. You're trying to be a great friend. You're, you're carrying all the things that we're trying to carry as well. I think that that kind of authenticity and vulnerability, that decision she made to go, I'm going to show them, you know, part of my life. Yep. I think that's a little, that's a small little message from the future as to how leadership is changing. I think the way that resounded with the people that she was leading, I think we all need to pay a little bit of attention to that. Well, and we could talk for the rest of the time about just unpacking that because the pressure is or the pressure has been. And I think even for young leaders, there's a similar pressure to be perfect and that's buttoned right. up. And that's I got right. it together. And that's why we edit things. And every leader knows there's an element of inauthenticity. I mean, we don't want to look sloppy and stupid right. and, and not be clear in our communication. But because of technology— we can fix almost everything, mm -hmm. but nobody lives in that world where everything is fixed. So figuring out then how to appropriately leverage that, um, neither pretend nor look like I didn't prepare. That's Somewhere right. in there. I got to be prepared, but I don't need to be so scripted that it's like, who could do that? Well, you know, what world does he live in? So that that's, that's a great—and how intuitive of her to right. know, nope, we need to leave that in there. And, of course, all the people around her, I'm sure, are like, we can't leave it here. It's not perfect. Right. We're Apple. Steve Jobs would be yeah. having a fit, yeah. Angela. Yeah, Steve Jobs, who wore the same thing every single day. Oh, <laughs> exactly. that's Steve Jobs. Yeah, yeah so perfect. Uh, yes. Okay, so in the book, we've got to move along. You talk about these nine surprising ways leadership is changing. So I, because our time is limited, I really just want to talk about three. People can get the book and get all nine. So you, I, I told you ahead of time, hey, let's just pick sure. three. So let's let's just jump in. Number one. Yeah. Well, it, it really kind of dovetails with what you were just saying, that desire to be perfect. There's also a desire in all of us to know as much as we can know and to uh, to believe that 
until we know enough, we cannot be a leader. Hmm. So I think the title of the of that particular chapter is you don't have to know everything in order to lead. In fact, you can't know everything. Uh, not only is information just exploding, uh, it's being created at such a rapid rate. But I think the picture of what a leader is, it's, it's changing. There was a day where if somebody just said, okay, leader, describe leader, we would say competent, confident, and we would say knowledgeable, that you accumulated a certain amount of knowledge and that amount of knowledge made you a leader. Yeah. And so we all kind of have this threshold that, oh, I've got to know, I've got to know everything there is to know. I've got to know as much as I can know. And when I do, then I'll be a leader. And sometimes that paralyzes us or keeps us, it holds us back from stepping out there. When in reality, because of how much information is changing, because of how much information is being created, we just can't know everything no, there is to it's know. Impossible. In well, any if we, and if we pretend we do, then we are pretending. That's right. And now we're back to being inauthentic. That's right. So, That's you right. know, round and— And surely round. you feel this way. I mean, you, I'm just, I was thinking about as I was getting ready for today, thinking about the way that even the church world, the, the, any organization has changed in the last 30, 40 years. There's so many terms and yep. topics that you— But I, I feel like this is an area where I am the exception because I do feel like I know pretty much everything. <laughs> Are you kidding? In fact, I'm laughing because I, our producer, who's looking through the glass at me, is so much smarter than me. She's smarter than both of us put together. Totally. We both know that. Right. Why we're in here and she's in there, I have no idea. Susie Gray, let's just give her a shout out. Yeah, so the other day she's talking about our drip campaign, and honestly, I gave her the name of a good plumber. <laughs> Get it? Drip campaign. Yeah. So, yeah, you, it's impossible to keep up, but leadership doesn't require knowing everything it requires knowing just enough to keep things moving. And we are both products of this and surrounding ourselves with people who know what we don't know. And again, not being afraid to ask. That's right. Uh, Kevin Kelly, uh, founder, editor of uh, Wired Magazine. He's got a book called The Inevitable. I think it's maybe 12 technological shifts that we need to pay attention to. Um, very interesting read. But one of the one of the shifts that he talks about is this the massive amount of information that's being created. He, he, he references a term, you know, in the gaming world, if you're a video gamer. That's me, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, right, which is why I wanted to bring this up with you, Andy, being such a video gamer. And you want to use a derogatory term to call someone or to make fun of someone, to, it's a slight, you'd call him a noob. You'd say, hey, quit being such a noob. And Kevin Kelly says, he says, technological life in the future will be a series of future upgrades. And the rate of graduations is accelerating. Features shift. Defaults disappear. Menus morph. No matter how long you've been using a tool, endless upgrades make you into a noob. Worse, we will be newbies forever, and that should keep <laughs> us humble. I think he's so right that we are going to be constantly stuck from here on out in this noob state in almost every different category of of knowledge. And the sooner we're willing to accept that, the more ready we will be for leadership in the future. Yeah, but for a lot of people, that's just intimidating. It makes you want to quit. Well, it makes you either want to quit or pretend. And once you start pretending, then, you know, you've signed your own release form, so to speak. So we all agree we can't know everything, but we're, we're responsible for leading. So, 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 so what, what do you, what do we do with that? Well, I, I mean, this is something I, I'm, I'm not just saying this because I'm on the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast, but you do, I feel like you do this really well. Um, I think there are three words 
that we have to say, three words that have to be in our arsenal of leadership, and it's I don't know. Mm. And I recognize that there's a contraction in there. So technically, those are four words <laughs> connected together. You're to, just saying that because Susie's watching. That's right. From the she'll other grammatically room. Uh, correct. We should this. give Susie a microphone. We, we may as well at this point. Uh, but we, we can't let our lack of information keep us from stepping up or stepping out. And we have to be willing to say, I don't know. I Not only do I not know, but I need you yep. to help me figure this out. Yep. And those three words, I don't know, I think they form a great invitation for other people, which is what we all want in a job. We all want to be invited, which is what great leaders do. Great leaders say, hey, I can't do all this on my own. We've got big dreams, big vision, big hopes, big dreams for where, where we're trying to go. And I don't know exactly how to get us there. I don't, I don't know enough about this topic to be able to get us there, and I need you. So would you bring your strengths, add them together with my weaknesses and my lack of knowledge, and together, together we can get there. I think those three words, uh, I don't know, those are three words we've got to have on ready if we're going to be leaders of the future. Hmm. You said I'm good at this. I, it's because years ago I heard Jim Collins say, aspire to be the dumbest person in the room. You know, surround yourself with smarter people. I found that to be pretty easy to do. <laughs> but it's the way forward, right? You know, because the leader doesn't have to be the smartest person in the room. You're, in fact, we're not the leaders because we're the smartest person in the room, hopefully. It's just because, you know, a variety of reasons. Sometimes we just got there first. And good leaders know what they don't know, and they're not afraid to ask. And generally, good leaders are able to figure out how to learn or figure out or get the information that you know, doesn't come to them naturally. And they just, going back to what we said, they just refuse to pretend because the smart people in our organization, they know when we're pretending. That's right. That's don't right. They, they know when you don't know. They know when you don't know. Mm-hmm. They know even when you're nodding your head and you go, yep, yep, like, oh, I know that, I know that. Mm-hmm. They're like, you didn't know that, you didn't know that. You just feel like you have to mm-hmm. know. And so um, our willingness to admit that we don't know actually, I think, empowers, like you said, other people. It, so. it really does serve as an invitation because somebody in the room either knows or knows someone who knows. So, yeah. Can I interject with this is a little bit of a, this is a, a reference from the stand-up comedy world, but there's a stand-up comedian named John Mulaney, and he's got a, he has a little bit that he does on these, these words, I don't know. Um, here, here's what he says. I'm just going to, I'm going to read this section from his, from his stand-up act. He says, in elementary school, it doesn't matter what you think. It just matters what you know. You have to have answers to questions. And if you say, I don't know, you get an X on your test and you get it wrong. And that's not fair because your brain has never been smaller. And also, that's not how life works. If you came to me now and you were like, hey, John, name three things the Stamp Act of 1765 accomplished, I'd go, I don't know, get out of my apartment. But when you're a little kid, you can't say, I don't know. And you should be able to. That should be an acceptable answer on a test. You should be able to write in, I don't know. I know you told me, but I've had a very long day. I'm very small (laughs) and I have no money. And so you can imagine the kind of stress that I am under. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I think, uh, obviously, I don't advocate for kids not right. learning and just saying, right. I don't know. But I think he's on to something. Well, and for, you know, a large percentage of our podcast listeners, they hear that and they go, yep, got it. You're right. But for some people, this is terrifying. I mean, it really is terrifying to acknowledge in front of peers. And maybe it's because, you know, we've all been scarred in elementary school or middle school or somewhere along the way or chastised be- because we didn't know. But to help that group, what does it actually communicate when we say, I don't know, because it doesn't communicate I'm stupid. It doesn't communicate I'm not smart. Right. But that's what it feels like. What does it actually communicate? Yeah, I think it says a couple things. It says, 
Number one, I'm not building my leadership identity on what I know, which I think the people around you want to know that. They want to know that your authority as a leader is not built on what you know and want and what you don't know, that it's built on something other than that. It's built on relationship, or it's built on a vision for the future, yeah. or it's built on influence. I think it also says, hey, y- you're smart enough to not know. Like, like we mentioned earlier, you're letting people know, I know that I don't know, and I'm smart enough to know that I don't know what I don't know. I think it it says I'm aware of what I don't know. S- self-awareness is the foundation upon which every virtue is built. So, even the acceptance of and the recognition of what it is that you don't know is is a level of self-awareness that every leader needs. And, and then lastly, as we've talked about, it's an invitation. It says, hey, I, yes, there are things I'm good at. There are also weaknesses that I have. And when you bring your strengths, that's what our team needs. One of the greatest gifts you can offer the people around you is an invitation. We need you and we're inviting you to bring all of you. And I don't know is that invitation. Yeah, to think of it as an invitation is pretty powerful. And again, the the smart people in our organization know when we don't know. (laughs) Um, And they don't mind following. I mean, you've just said it, so I'm just repeating what you said. They they don't mind following people who don't know. They don't want to follow people who pretend. That's just insecure and dishonest. Okay, before we continue, as I mentioned at the top of the broadcast, our sponsor, Belay, is offering a free download of their latest book, Delegate to Elevate. In Delegate to Elevate, you'll learn how to stop diluting your efforts by trusting your team with more responsibility. This, of course, will empower you to courageously focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses, something we talk about all the time on the podcast. And if you do that, of course, you'll develop future leaders in the process. Just text the word Andy, A-N-D-Y, to 55123. That's Andy to 55123 for your free copy today. And you'll be back to doing what only you can do, which is growing your organization. Well, let's, let's talk about another one. Number two of the nine. Get the right people on the bus and a few who aren't so right. I'm sure you know that reference, get the right people on the bus. Yes, and now you think you're smarter. I just mentioned you're smarter than Jim Collins. <laughs> doctor, of course, you're a doctor as well. So, well. so this is this kind of, when I read this one, in fact, when I first got the advanced reader copy of the book and just went through the of course, you know, it's nine things, so what do I do? I look at the nine things real quick. And this one kind of stopped me like, Clay, you're going to get in a little bit of trouble because we've all been <laughs> right. raised on the mantra, you know, it's it's who before what and all that stuff. So unpack this because yeah. this really is important. And again, it's one of those invisible undercurrents that if we're not careful, we find ourselves being affected by and can't figure out why. Well, of course, what Jim Collins did with Get the Right People on the Bus was brilliant. For one, it's just, it's incredible communication because it's so sticky. That one little phrase, it's mm-hmm. so memorable, it's so portable. People just, as soon as they hear it, they go, ah, I think I know what he means by that. Get the right people on the bus. But not only do we need the right people on the bus, we need a few who aren't so right. And the challenge that I feel with that phrase that he wrote, I think now 20 years ago, is the word right. What does it mean to be the right people? How do we get the right people? And who, more importantly, who are the right people? And who are the people that maybe uh, there was a day where they weren't the right people, but in the future, they're going to be the right people. That That's the issue that I have. My problem with the word right is that if I, if just left alone, if it's just me choosing the people that need to be on the bus, they're going to look just like exactly like me. me. I know. Because yeah. right. That's why I love this. We're prone. We're just predisposed to believe that right means same, that right means 
educated like I was educated, grew up where I grew up, similar family background as me, uh, similar preferences and values. And uh, it's really— And conflict-free. That's right. Right? I mean, because well, it's me. He, she shouldn't be on the team. There's too, you know, there's too much conflict. She's not the right person. Why? It was too much conflict. Well, what does that mean? Exactly. It means you, there may be something to learn. Keep going. This there may so be good. something to learn. Yeah. That's really well said. Yeah, that might be what it means. But we've got to, we've, as we're looking to the future, we have to be willing to look in the mirror and go, all right, right doesn't necessarily mean same. And the, and the danger is, I mean, if we, I think if we want to get another layer underneath it, I think I think what it is is ultimately just self love. It's it's just me loving me mm-hmm. when I you know when there's when I'm prone to surround myself with people that are more like me, or when I'm prone to project more potential on people that are educated like me, come from where I come from, similar values and background as me. It's just a form of self love. It's a form of me stroking my own ego of saying, hey, yeah. if that person does well, then that's going to make me look good because they're like me. Uh, I learned yes. the other day that the— oh, Well, I was going to say, oftentimes the right person because it feels right. That's right. It feels that's right. right. Because it feels right to me, which may mean they're the wrong person. So in, in the book, you you talk about sort of learning this within the context of marriage, which is kind of a— can you talk well, about that, that a little bit? Yeah, that's the most profound way that I learned it. Um, I'm I'm married to someone that is similar to me in a lot of ways, but obviously she's very different than me in a lot of ways. And I spent the first couple of years of our marriage trying to get her to see why my way of living was the best way of living. (laughs) But if you would only come over here on my side, I'll show you how to really live the way you've been doing it is just, uh, there's a better way. And I spent a lot of energy doing that. And you know, it finally took some maturity. And you and couldn't things. take her out of your leadership team. She's stuck, <laughs> right? There's, right. We're, we got to figure this out. Go ahead. <laughs> That's right, for sure. But yeah, I, I when I finally was mature enough to realize, oh, uh, the way she sle- sees life is important. And the way she sees life is actually better in a lot of ways than the way I see life. Mm-hmm. That it gave me, uh, it made me realize, oh, this is not, um, the energy is not best spent on me getting her to come over to my side and see it my way. But the best way to use that energy is to go see it from her side and realize that there's this gift in life now that I get these two sets of lens to look through life. I get to see it through my lens, but I now also get to see it through her lens as well. And that right isn't necessarily same in a lot of different ways, that actually different uh, is oftentimes better. And it took me a couple of years in marriage to learn that. And when I finally did, man, things got a lot better. Yeah. So there's a difference between an uncomfortable person and the wrong person. There's a difference between the obnoxious person and the wrong person, because these are the things we often, you know, he's just, he doesn't fit. She doesn't fit. Well, doesn't fit. We're back to what you just said. Doesn't fit means we've decided what the fit is. And so we're all going to end up being the same because we all fit together. <laughs> right. And we miss out. And I, I we know we were kind of kidding about Jim Collins a few minutes ago, but if he were in here with us, he would agree completely. Sure. And that right, it, it, we have to be careful how we define right. But starting with people as opposed to processes definitely is the way forward. But having that diversity of experience on a team. Now, one of the things that founders often end up with is you start with a team 
And you generally start with people you already know because you're not going to go hire a bunch of people and try to talk them into something, to, you know, unless you're starting with a lot of capital. So you start with the team, you have a dream together, and you experience the growth of the organization together. So there is a bond and a thing that's powerful, but generally those people are a lot alike. I mean, yours, one of them was your college roommate. Yeah, like a lot, well, a lot well of exactly. Rick Holiday, who's still with us. So again, so on one hand, you you don't treat people disrespectfully or say, hey, I just got to change this up to change this up. But if I'm not careful, I end up falling into this very trap you're talking about because as a founder and longevity, and we've been successful. Why would we want to? And again, nobody looks forward to an uncomfortable meeting or an uncomfortable person. But my goodness, if you just rule all those folks out, you've put a lid on the, the yeah, organization. So You're missing. You're, I, I think you're just missing something better. I yeah. think it's not one's bad and one's right or one's right and one's wrong. I think it's just there is a way that in which the world is changing that I think is actually moving us toward a better a better place. So three three big ideas around this. Number one, if we were to whatever you want to call that person that we would have said, well, that's not the same. So therefore it's not the right person or, you know, to put it in terrible turns, quote unquote, the wrong person, I would say the wrong person or the wrong people often help us make the right decisions. A really low hanging fruit example of this would be Abraham Lincoln in uh, the book that Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote, Team of Rivals. I mean, it really is, it is staggering when you stop and when you put it in present day context to think about what he did, that these men that he ran against, that he saw the world so differently than that, that were his rivals that he then invited them to be a part of his cabinet. I mean, it's, I mean, to think about- Unheard of. It's unheard of. Yeah. And to think about Joe Biden saying, hey, Donald Trump, would you come be on my cabinet? Yeah. Or to think about Donald Trump inviting Hillary Clinton to be on his cabinet. I mean, or Donald Trump accepting the or role even of accepting. being on the cabinet, <laughs> exactly. right? It's just not going to happen. It feels otherworldly. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even seem possible that that happened, but Evidently, that's what he did. And and when you read the book, you read over and over again decisions that he made that he wouldn't have made had he not had those people around him. The way he rolled out the Emancipation Proclamation, when he rolled it out, how he rolled it out, all of that was informed. Uh, I mean, example after example after example, informed and uh, edited by men that saw the world differently than mm. he saw the world. And his willingness to surround himself with people that would have seemed like the wrong people— uh, it helped him make the right decision. Number two, the wrong people help us see the right way. There is a way to see the world that is the way you see the world. That uh, It's hard to change that. Now, we can all grow, and the more you see the world, the more, the bigger you see the world. But, but we all go home at the end of the day. <laughs> that's right. right? That we is go exactly back to the, right. way to the we world see, we see. Because it's most comfortable. That's yeah. right. And the easiest way to do that is to surround yourself, as you mentioned earlier, to surround yourself with people that have different experiences, a diversity of experiences, diversity of the way I grew up and the school I went to and the childhood I had and the way I see the world. The more we can put other people around the table that see it different than us, it might be more challenging. It might lead to more contentious meetings, to your point. But I think if um, I think about in in the context here, you know, we're, we're constantly putting on events for families, for teenage kids and elementary age kids, and it would be real easy to limit the perspective to the family you grew up in or the family I grew up yep. in. And you and I both grew up in a family where the mom and the dad were in the home, and uh, at least in my case, my mom stayed at home. She was a homemaker, and my dad went off to work. Yep. And to normalize that as that's everyone's experience would be missing a pretty significant portion of the population. You probably remember this, but years ago um, in our leadership team meeting, we spent 
several weeks um, listing and thinking through our organizational assumptions. Mm. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. We came up with a hundred things that we just assumed, things that we're not, we don't consciously um, include in our decision making, but s sort of sit in the background. Mm. And to your point, so many of those assumptions were formed around our experience. And because so many of us had the same life experiences, we were, honestly, we were blind in, uh, to the, the realities and experience of other people. And consequently, we were not factoring those experiences into our planning and our programming because of our shared assumptions. Yep. And the only way to break out of the prison of shared assumptions is to surround ourselves with people who don't share those experiences and consequently don't share those assumptions. Mm. But, you know, you got to really love your mission and vision to break out of that mm. because it's just so comfortable not to. But again, that's one of those undercurrents that if organizational leaders don't awaken to, they're going to find themselves behind, woefully behind. And again, not even understanding, how did we miss this? That's Why right. did we miss That's this? Right. You know, we, th we thought everybody would show up. We thought everybody would love this. Well, no, the people around your table love it, but they're not the majority of you. Okay, and then there was a third one, I think. Yeah, the the third big idea of, of this right people on the bus concept is that there are so many times where the wrong, quote-unquote, wrong people, you know, the people that were too driven or too challenging— that they help make us the right leader. Uh, I've got story after story of examples in my own life, but the one that comes to mind the quickest is I, um, you all moved me into a position where I then inherited a team. And there was a person that was working for me that it didn't take me long, maybe three, four or five months to realize, oh, this is not working. And so I said, hey, unfortunately, this is not working. You are welcome to go find another job. I think the way you all have put it is we, you know, I, I, I freed up his future. You know, you now have a free future to go do anything else you want to do. Well, he ended up landing in another department, another uh, part of the organization. Uh, and then I would hear about it. I would hear that he was doing well over there. And then the longer I was in the job I was in, the more I learned of how much the people that worked with him loved him. And so then I started, you know, it started Second guessing. hitting me like, oh, no, <laughs> yeah. maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was me. Maybe there was something for me to learn. But because I dismissed too quickly and didn't put the issues on the table and say, well, let's figure this out, mm. I think I missed an opportunity. Well, fortunately, as fate would have it, four years later, you all moved my job again. You changed my role again. Where did you change my job to? Now, all of a sudden, I am back as this person's manager yet again. <laughs> so sitting in that first one-on-one, -on -one, you know, we were both like, this is deja vu. Here we are again, Right. But fortunately, I feel like I had gained the awareness that, oh, maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was me. And it was, um, it was massively helpful. It was, a, it was an incredible development that I wouldn't have gotten any other way because we finally put it on the table. All right, well, it didn't work last time. Maybe yeah. it wasn't you. Maybe right. it wasn't me. Let's figure out how can we make it work this time. And it, it made me, it forced me to become a better communicator. It forced me to be more assertive in what I'm looking for. It forced me to spell out exactly what I'm asking. And it forced him to be more responsive in the way he was uh, giving me information or trying to help give me the information that I felt like I needed in the way that I needed it. I feel like both of us grew, but I know for me specifically, the person that I would have said was the wrong person actually helped make me into Maybe not the right leader, but certainly a better leader than I would wow. have been otherwise. Well, that was a lot of grace on both of your parts. So, okay. So, two out of nine, number three. <laughs> yeah, the third one, uh, speaking of conflict, 
the book says it this way, conflict never gets easy, goes away, or feels great. Yeah, that's, that's true, Clay, but that's not new. So <laughs> how is that an invisible undercurrent that has potential to undermine our leadership? Yeah, it's certainly not new. Um, there has always been conflict. Learning how to handle conflict, learning how to have productive conflict has always been a significant attribute of great leaders, but it is going to be even more important in the future for two specific reasons. Number one, uh, we are having more conflict at work than we are, have ever had before. I know for me personally, I've had more conflict in the last two years professionally than I'd had in the first 18 years of my career uh, for a number of reasons, but one of which is because yesterday's taboo topics are today's interview questions. I mean, the, the things that you would have never brought up at work, mm -hmm. the things that you would have never talked about with your boss, these are now questions that people are bringing up in an interview. So how does your organization handle uh, racial healing? Uh, what, what, is, what do you think about gender identity? What's your view on sexual orientation? I mean, these are questions that come up in the first conversation. Whenever that happens to me, yeah. I want to go, can you tell me your name again? You yeah, know, can, yeah. we, can we back up? To yeah, why are we talking about <laughs> exactly. this? Exactly. Yeah. We just met. One of my really close friends, his daughter has applied to several medical schools. And these questions are on the application. They have, you know, and on first blush, it's like, what in the world does that have to do with mm -hmm. your acumen, your ability to succeed or to be accepted in this? But they're, they're all right out there. And, mm -hmm. and every, you know, I think she applied three or four places almost identical questions right up front. Things that, you know, when you and I think about applying for a yeah. graduate degree, yeah. it's like, yeah. why are do, you asking me Yeah, this? do you yeah. know where the lungs are, right? Yeah, yeah. let yeah. you would think you yeah. would have. Ask me a medical <laughs> right, question. Right. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, that that's reason number one, because their conflict is, is uh, there's just more of it. But then secondly, we're not exactly getting better at it. I would just say, in, the, in general, as a society, we're actually getting worse. Uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, he quotes a number of uh, HR executives or deans of admissions who, who talk about how prominent helicopter parenting is. Uh, I, I think it's the dean of Stanford that said this. I, I had interacted not only with a tremendous number of parents, but with students who seemed increasingly reliant upon their parents in ways that felt simply off. Mm. I began to worry that college kids, and she put that in quotations, as college students have become known, were somehow not quite formed fully as humans. They seemed to be scanning the sidelines for mom and dad, under-constructed, existentially impotent. Maybe it's because we call them college kids. kids. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the language. That's why. No, but, that, but that, that phrase, scanning the sidelines for mom or dad, that's a— Woo. That's a powerful picture. And I mean, as a, you know, I, you, you've done it. Your kids are out of the house. You've got fully functioning, terrific adult kids. I mean, my wife and I, we're still in it. We're still trying to figure out how do we help them not have to feel like they only know how to avoid conflict, but how do they engage in productive conflict? But it's not just about parenting. It's about managing people at work as well, that this has got to be a skill that no matter your age, no matter where you are in your career, no matter where you are in the organization, we have to become uh, black belts in a sense yep. when it comes to conflict if we're going to be uh, great leaders in the future. And, you know, I want to, again, drill down and say specifically what do we do? And, you know, behind the question of, you know, help us specifically, the level of sensitivity that is required of a leader and the higher up the organization we go— 
the greater the expectation that we will have mastered wow. sensitivity. We will have mastered sensitivity in such a way that I can ask you any of those questions mm-hmm. and it won't hurt your feelings, mm-hmm. but not just not hurt your feelings, it won't make you uncomfortable and it won't offend you because offending and making people uncomfortable is like, you know, supposedly, theoretically, the worst thing you can do. <laughs> I grew up in a world where nobody cared. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just asked. They just said it. Mm. And if you went home and told your mom or your daddy, they're like, and? So what? It's, it's go back. So yeah, what are you going to do? Right. So what are, and, and, and that's one of the things I tried to be consistent with my kids when they'd come home complaining about stuff. I would say, so what are you going to do? Because mm. I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing. I'll answer any questions you have. But, you know, what are you going to do? It has become so difficult. But again— hey, that's part of the new leadership landscape. We have to be sensitive to it. We need to respond to it. So what do we do? Well, I love what you're saying that, yeah, we could just get frustrated and go, well, it shouldn't be that way. And everybody yeah. needs to just grow yeah. up and get strong yeah. and be more secure. You Back know? in the old days. Exactly. You, know? well, you, you can do that. Yeah. Or you can say, all right, I'm going to have a plan. I'm going to have a plan for how I'm going to handle hard conversations. And this is not going to solve everything. But what I try to do in this chapter is just say, hey, look, um, hard conversations are they're a part of leadership. They're not. They're not going away. In fact, they're they're become they're increasing just in the quantity of them. And you can actually get better at it. But you'll get better when you prepare for them. Hmm. And preparing for them uh, is possible in almost every scenario. I, I give just four a, a plan of four simple A's that you start by affirming. What can I say that's true about this person? Maybe it's I like working for you. I really appreciate you. Uh, thank you for the way you've helped me. Um, I'm here today to just have a great conversation about a topic that's important to me and that I think will really help our organization. What is it that you can affirm? And you need to prepare that. Don't make yourself think of it on the spot or else you end up saying something that might not be true or saying something that derails the conversation. But you're establishing a bridge of relationship or trust that will help carry whatever needs to be carried across the bridge. You start by affirming. Secondly, you ask. What are a couple of questions of curiosity that you can ask? Uh, There's something you don't know. There's something that you don't see. And if you saw it the way the other person saw it, it would help you understand the situation better. And so this is, you know, Stephen Covey's— Seek to understand. Seek to understand before before being understood. Sure. It's it's going, hey, help me understand. Tell me where you're coming from. Help help me to see it the way you're seeing. So you affirm, you ask, and then you acknowledge. You say back to the person— what you heard them saying. I, I'm curious, what's your what's your greatest fear if we were to change this? Is it people would leave? Is it we'd lose customers? Is it it would be more expensive? Is it people would be in total chaos? I mean, you you, you don't know until you ask. Uh, we, my wife and I do a lot of the, uh, we do a lot of mentoring of newly engaged couples. And I love this exercise with a, uh, a couple because, you know, we'll start with one of them and say, hey, tell us your latest, greatest conflict. You know, and it's always about the in-laws. And so we'll say, okay, great. Tell your spouse something you would like to be different or something that you feel. And so, you know, oftentimes the guy will say, I just, I kind of wish you didn't tell your mom everything we talk about. Okay, well, that's going to get you in trouble, but that's good that you said that, you know, and then we'll ask, you know, the, the other say, hey, say back to him what you just heard. And oftentimes she'll say, well, um, you're, are, are you saying that you don't want me to ever talk to my mom again? That's what I was saying. Yeah, you heard me <laughs> loud and clear. Okay. okay, that's what you heard. That is not what he said. Yeah. Let's focus on what he said. So it's sometimes it's actually acknowledging back what you heard in very similar language. So it might be, so what I hear you saying is, if we were to make that change, your greatest concern would be the cost of it. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when you hear, when you hear it back, 
you know, it helps you refine it to go, you know what? I'm actually not afraid of how expensive it's going to be because it'll be worth it or because uh, it matters so much to our organization or whatever it may be. But that closing that loop of acknowledging is just so important in communication. So if you can affirm, if you can ask, if you can acknowledge and then advise, you will have a much more fruitful conversation. And if you don't go through it in that order, what usually happens is you'll end up having to, uh, if you start with the advising part, you know, I got to tell you something that I've been, this has been bothering me. It's been killing me. I got to get it off my chest. Yep. If you go that way, you end up having to acknowledge that you're wrong, having to ask for forgiveness, and having to affirm that you still like your job or you still want the friendship or whatever it may be. So you can always control the preparation and you can control the order in which you go through when it comes to a plan like this uh, in conflict. Well, Clay, this has been fascinating. And to our podcast listeners, we've just talked about three of the nine. So you really need to to pick this book up. You can find it wherever fine books are sold. Hey, Clay, before we wrap up, any— parting words, final shot, anything you've, uh, you know, feedback you've gotten on the book that you feel like, hey, make sure you consider this or top of mind. What final thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, there's usually, you know, there's there's two kinds of people. There's the kind of people that are going like, we got to get back to the good old days, you know, or there's people that are excited about the future. And I've just chosen to be, you know, a, a person that believes that we can have a better future, that we are moving toward a future where leadership really is possible. It's more than possible. It's it's as needed today as it's ever been, and it will be as needed tomorrow as it's ever been as well. And so I I, I hope that um, if if you love the way it was in the past, there are certainly some things from the past that we ought to pull into the future. But I hope that every one of us can go, you know what, for the sake of the future, for the sake of who I want to be leading and influencing in the future, I want to develop into the kind of leader that the future is demanding. Wow. The name of the book is The Aspiring Leader's Guide to the Future by Clay Scroggins. So I hope you will pick it up. And to all of our listeners, we want to thank you for joining us and invite you to check out Clay Scroggins' work at claysgroggins.com. That's claysgroggins.com. And be sure to visit the andystanley.com website where you can download the Leadership Podcast Application Guide that includes a summary of our entire discussion along with questions for reflection for you personally or for your entire leadership team. And of course, don't forget to join us next month on the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast. <laughs>